0: On a local level, you actually have two real estate investors being charged of serious financial crime allegations in Bergen. Money
1: makes a it makes a Money makes a Dear listeners, we are back in the studio with another episode of the Laundry, and this time we're looking at transaction monitoring for corporate entities. And Magnus, you have ongoing research on the use and efficiency of transaction monitoring. So in your research so far, what are the key issues with transaction monitoring, in your own words?
0: If I were to sum up the key issues, I would put it in three buckets. So the first one, it's more of a soft one, right? So it might be that we are too naive in our customer relationships, which is a quite important one. And the second one is that the technical setup in the transaction monitoring engine is quite poorly designed to capture corporate entities' transactions or corporate entities' misconduct in, in the eyes of the AML. And then the third one it's more around the process and knowledge. So the processes we have for investigation is mainly tailored for personal transactions from, let's say, people, and not as uh, good for corporate transactions, very often due to the knowledge level that you have within the teams.
1: Let's dig into each of these issues. And- in the last episode of The Laundry, it was a Norwegian special and we had the head of FIU in Norway as a guest and he pointed out that only 10% of the SARS, the suspicious activity reports from on corporations, only 10% of them were on large corporates. And he pointed out that that is a risk because it's within the large corporates you have the ability to move a lot of money in one transaction compared to small SMEs. Is that what you mean with naive?
0: Yes. I think naive in terms of customer relationships is that the way we do business today, like in the Nordic or anywhere, is that you very often have the same customer advisor over a very long period of time. Um, And this might trigger that you have a bias, like an unconscious bias towards your counterpart but really assumes that they are not doing nothing wrong because you've known them for so long. Um, If you look historically, uh, you see that the shipping firms or shipping companies have used the same customer advisor for multiple years, which then makes the first line not as efficient as it could be to detect money laundering issues. Um, And if you then take this to the second line, we don't really have that problem, but we're really dependent on first line knowing their customers for the second line to work properly in AML.
1: Uh, and also, a point in this is in the Nordics, we have a high level of trust, which also then makes us intuitively think that, you know, it's probably okay rather than going into a more uh, suspicious approach and really investigating thoroughly. I can only assume.
0: Indeed. And maybe just to add one example there, right? Um, especially in Norway, we do have the same owner in many of the largest corporates, which is the, actually the state. And who would believe that the state is doing any wrongdoings? But what we've actually seen is that most of the scandals that you have in non-financial entities has been within entities that is owned partly by the state. Uh, and it might be that are we too trustworthy or do we think they are too trustworthy to do mistakes? Or are we a bit naive to, towards a state as an owner?
1: And I think that I think should be, be so a topic so. for another episode. Let's move on to, okay. Yes. Uh, the second issue that you have seen with transaction monitoring, the technical setup. What, what do you mean by that?
0: Yes. So I think in terms of the technical setup, I believe there's three main issues, right? So, so first is that the way we're doing transaction monitoring with our current scenarios today is quite poorly designed in the way that they are vague and capture too much in each scenario.
1: So false resulting in a lot of false positives.
0: In, indeed, exactly. So you have very high false positive ratios because you almost capture anything in very few scenarios. And, and the second one is that we are not really leveraging the data that is available to enrich our scenarios and to enrich our transaction monitoring, which is basically a transaction data com- combined with external data, such as industry trends. What is typical for this industry? Uh, how can you compare that to the patterns that we see at entity level, etc. And then the third one is that the level of creativity in the scenarios are quite low. So it's quite built on in point, uh, in point of time scenarios, which means we look at a certain time and we only look at that type of transaction. And at that level of lost creativity is quite important.
1: Criminals are pretty creative in thinking ahead, thinking outside of the scenarios, finding new opportunities and technologies to exploit and take advantage of the system. is uh, how would you think about that if you were ahead of AML related to the issues you brought up?
0: Indeed, so <clears throat> I create I, criminals are, are they often say that they are one step ahead. Um, but that's because they are re- really creative at how they do these money laundering schemes, right? We've seen these large scandals where like multi-year scandals and heists where they automatically got the ATMs to withdraw your money through cyber fraud that we spoke in the last episode, right? So if I were the head of AML, I would do the following. So first, I would make sure that the competence and knowledge within the organization is continuously updated based on, based on real case examples and it should be not only from your bank but from other banks as well and that there we need the fiu unit in, in in Norway to really come onto the field and, and play with the banks and then the second one is that i would revise all my scenarios including how we use external data and also how we define the rules building on more than only transactions we use accounting data we use payment patterns we use history and then the third one is of course that i would go into collaboration, right? Collaborate with fraud, collaborate with cyber, collaborate with other banks.
1: So just to comment again, uh, just to go back to one of the points uh, you make, because it's easy to say, oh, let's just couple our transaction monitoring with all external data available. Let's connect it with like a complete KYC risk profile, et cetera, like connect the internal data to the external levers. But that is really hard to do in, in practice, I think I think you're making
0: a really good point there, Margaret. And and I think one of the key comments that's been coming from the FSA in Norway, at least uh, through their inspection, is that there are many banks that doesn't have the complete customer files, or they don't have the level of completeness to actually look at industry trends, to look to compare industries, etc. Because they lack a lot of data. And I think one very ex- aspect, and maybe I should use, uh, using Strice as an example, right, is that if you manage to connect the dots using external data and filling your, let's say, increasing the completeness through other sources than only from the client itself, you can actually get to that level where these types of analysis or these types of transaction monitoring scenarios can actually be made possible. And I think there, let's, for instance, the network analysis that and I know Patrick, the CTO in, in Stryce has spent quite a lot of time on. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely what we see as well. And as you, as you say, it's, it is one of the areas, well, we see kind of moving more and more into, into that area. But let's dig in to the third issue you have seen through your research, and that is the process and knowledge.
0: Indeed. So if you start with the process aspect, right, and that is that when you have so few alerts coming from corporate transactions, the, the investigation team is purely trained, like the first level of the investigation is purely trained on personal cases. So that means personal customers that are being triggered. But what you need to do is that you need to have sufficient alarms coming on corporate entities to ensure that that first level investigation, before it goes to the auditors, the former policeman, etc., that works in like the really uh, deep dive investigation team, right? Or a special investigation team that level need to be further trained on corporate entities both to help the special entity team to be more focused in their investigation, but also to ease more easily filter out what is a non-issue or a false positive. And this really boils down to knowledge, right? Because in the special investigation team, you very often have auditors uh, you have former FIU employees, you have uh, very experienced investigators, right? So you have a lot of knowledge there. But they don't get the basis to do their research and do their investigation the best way because the knowledge in the first level investigation is not always as high as it should be on corporate level. It's really good on personal and personal customers, but they are lag- lagging behind on the corporate side. And that's a really important element. And that's something each and every head of AML should work on to build that competence.
1: So among us. I want to revisit the scenarios and the technical tuning of the scenarios. We're talking about data, which is difficult and challenging, but through your research, you have looked at five different things that could potentially be more low hanging fruit. So we want to walk through them and potentially some inspiration if for a head of AMLs out there. So the first one is payment patterns. What have you seen here?
0: Yes, so on payment patterns, there's two very important things, so one is the concept of hibernation uh, and the concept of hibernation is that you would put transactions that would be flagged if they were higher amount or from certain geographies and you put that into let's say to rest or you put it under let's say um hibernating it basically goes into into sleep and then you assess all other transaction that comes under the same scenario against these previous alarms that has gone, gone into let's say sleep mode or in hibernation and you assess if this in sum would be caused, would be trigger an alarm and then you might capture if there's consistent let's say planning uh, in accordance with the limits of the bank and then of course it's another very important one which is about the industry patterns so the payment patterns of a certain entity should be uh, compared to what is known what is the known industry standard or known industry pattern for this type of activity. And that really requires the bank to have an industry perspective, which they always scan against as part of their scenarios. And that will allow you to detect not only uh, scenarios that is rule-based, but also if it's actually triggers or it's actually deviates from what you would expect this type of entity to do.
1: Um, that is also, again, back to data, That that is kind of challenging to get a full overview of an industry because like, in your bank you would need to get like based on the data that companies in that industry generates internally and you need to connect it with like a holistic external view of that industry as well so that is uh, that is quite the challenge do you have any like specific examples where this um, like do you have a specific example to illustrate
0: yeah absolutely so let's say you do let's say you store transaction and categorize them by industry code. In Norway, you have what is called the NACE code, right? So it's basically the the four digit number that explains within which industry your corporate entity is tied to. And this requires you to have that on file, just to mention that, right? Um, And if you store the the transaction per code and you compare it by type of product, you can actually see how the patterns of payment should flow for these types of industries. And then you can and then you can also have the risk rating from, let's say, the FIU unit in Norway to these codes. So you can be more aware on the codes that are for high-risk industries compared to those that are low-risk. And if you see that, let's say, one very common is, is mechanics. If you see that there's one mechanic that you see there's always something around, there's always some sales between 8 to 4 p.m. every day, but then suddenly you see that there's one that's always registers all like a big bunch of sales at, at 21 PM. That's something you should look into, right? So that should trigger an alarm regardless of amount. If it's a very small amount, you would, might put it in hibernation and see if this is something that happened once or consistently happening over time. Um, so that's one that's like specific example.
1: Um, let's get to the second one, which is bank transactions.
0: Yes. So bank transactions is basically almost like a subcategory of payment patterns. But what we mean, what I mean when I say the bank transaction category is that it's about enriching the view on your transactions. So today it's really the transaction monitoring is really based on looking at one transaction at a period at one specific time and see if this breaches our rules. But what I'm saying is that you also need to look at the attributes of that transaction. And uh, one example would be that if you always pay your consultant, let's say every week to the same bank number with the same description, etc., but then every sixth week, the account number changes and there's no description, right? That means that the attributes of a very common transaction has changed, and it might be that that's a payment to a personal bank account number, which might be indicate of laundering. Or mixing your or laundering uh, mixing mixing uh, money from illegal activities with legal activities. So that's one example. Like you need to you actually need to detect if these attributes of a transaction changes over time.
1: And the third one, which is third party use of bank products or third party generates transactions. What do you mean by that? Do you have a specific example? Yes, we can
0: take an example here. So this basically means, let's say you are let's say you sell carpets in norway right and you sell only carpets in norway and you buy a wool from a very specific land let's say you have uh, let's say you have indian uh, wool that's coming in right so but then you see that you have a banking product which is a credit card that's only being used in uh, in uh, in milan right so what you see is that there's a geogra- it a geography deviation from what you would expect for this entity and it might be an indication of third party use or misuse of that corporate product, which is the credit card. And the company might pay your bills. They might do everything the the, the transactions they do in, in, in Italy might be legitimate, but it might be personal use. So that's something that also should be triggered if there's a third party misuse of a certain product.
1: And the fourth one is inconsistency in account activity. What do you mean by that?
0: Yes. So it's very common that you always look at the transaction for the entity. But what we mean by this is that you should also look if it's consistent with the person's accounts, that, uh, sorry, the owner's accounts in the same bank. So let's say I have a company and I put all my costs on the company, but I put most of my income on my personal account, right? Um, it might be an obvious one, but it might be that the cost I put on the company is purely legitimate. It won't trigger any alarms. And the inflow I get on my personal account is not large enough or maybe small enough not to be detected. So you need to look if there's inconsistent activity in terms of what is the inflow of the personal accounts and the outflow of the ex- uh, entity account, and if there's anything here that indicates a mismatch or indicates that the same funds from the same activities are being split between cost and income, where cost goes to the entity and income goes to the owner. Um, that's one example of the in money.
1: And the final one, which is kind of obvious, so we are looking for a specific example here, which is sudden changes in behavior. Like This is, of course, something yes. you should try to monitor for. So on the corporate side, what, what is a great example of this that could indicate money laundering? Yes,
0: so there's a like, the sudden change in behavior. It build, it's basically building on all the ones that we already mentioned. It, it requires a history of the bank, uh, and what we should have is a scenario that triggers if there are a very sudden change in the way we use cash, or the way we use, let's say, credit cards. Um, and if you look at money laundering, you want you know that there's like a mix, a mixing layer where you mix your legal activity, your illegal funds with your legal funds, and this is often then captured by looking if there's a sudden change or a periodical change in behavior. Uh, one can be that I always add. I uh, always uh, deposit money suddenly in, in, uh, in different post post terminals across the country at a very specific time. Or I do it uh, 10,000 every five days, stuff like that. Or I always do it on Sundays or Saturdays. So that's sudden changes in behaviors that either can happen once or it can happen multiple times that the bank should be able to capture. And I think most actually capture that today.
1: And now to the new segment of The Laundry. This week in AML, where we'll go through the headlines that caught our attention the past week. First off, the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, updated last week the list of high-risk jurisdictions for money laundering and terrorist financing and made an important change by moving Myanmar to its blacklist. So now might be a good time for financial institutions to update their AML country risk assessment. And to add...
0: Uh, on a local level, you actually have two real estate investors being charged of serious financial crime allegations in Bergen. And, and this also then means that this might be a good time to check if your real estate clients are fully up to date on the AML regulations.
1: And that also ties back to the first point we discussed today, the naivety and the risk of large corporates, because it is in large corporate transactions that the most money can be moved and laundered and being embezzled.
0: Indeed, and what would be fun, right? So I actually know who these guys are. So, Marit, can you strice the name and see if you get any hits?
1: Well, talking about having complete uh, customer profiles and having rich indicators, I can see that, you know, it's quite a complex ownership structures, a lot of companies. And, uh, yeah, on... Um, in total, I could see over twenty-five flags in strice across his, um, across the corporate structure. So yeah, interesting. Will be interesting to follow this case. So in this episode, we've covered a lot of ground on transaction monitoring. I hope for our listeners that something, some of this was useful. And if you have a specific story where you have implemented some of it, or it doesn't, the tips we've talked about doesn't even work. We're super eager to hear from you. Thank you so much for tuning into the laundry and looking forward to next week's episode.
0: Thank you.